Well, everybody, welcome to Sunday School. I am so thankful to be able to bring you the word today. We are going to pick back up on our series about Noah, this wonderful and very well-known story in the Bible. We are going to be digging back into it. If you remember a couple weeks ago before our Easter break, um, where we took time to focus on the week of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right before that, we were talking about Noah and how he found favor with the Lord and how he lived righteous when no one else was. And it was such a timely lesson, and I'm just very happy to be able to continue in that vein. Um, If you weren't able to listen to it, you can go back um, a couple weeks on the podcast and find that lesson. It's lesson one in the series, Finding Favor. And you can listen to that even before you start here. Um, that way you can get kind of get caught up. Today we're going to be talking about how Noah was called to commitment. And God gives favor to those who commit their lives to him. There's, that is so true. He gives favor to those who are committed to him. Um, let's read a scripture to set the stage as we continue to look at the story of Noah. It's Genesis chapter 6, verses 13 through 14, and it says, And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. Now these are just a small portion of the very detailed instructions that God would give Noah. So let's imagine um, just at this portion of where God tells him to make the ark and to waterproof it, essentially. Imagine what it would have been like for Noah. Noah, at this point, is tired, and he's hot and sticky. For months, he and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, had been waterproofing this massive construction project. Most likely, this was the largest project that anyone up until that time had ever undertaken. It was bigger than any house. This exterior of the structure was 450 feet long and 75 feet wide. It was 45 feet high. The Bible gives us those details. It had taken years just to get the the lumber ready, to cut down the trees and to make the lumber ready to be used for God's purpose. Noah's family had probably cleared acres of forest land, and now here they are in the middle of a big field with this huge vessel. And, and maybe, possibly, it wasn't even close to any body of water, and it's so large, there's no way to move it. So when you put yourself in his place over those many years, it's possible that Noah wondered on several occasions, you know, have I lost my mind? Did I really hear God's voice? This is just, you know, this is just huge. What have I gotten myself into? So if you picture one day in his life in the middle of this process, Noah standing up on a scaffold of rough locks 30 feet off the ground and at his feet is a container of hot tar. He was smearing it all over this large uh, boat, these big cypress planks on the exterior of the structure. A few hundred feet away, there's probably a kiln dug into this to the ground and it was constantly smoldering as they heated up and produced from scratch the thousands of gallons of tree pitch that would work as the tar they needed for this project. In a few more months, they would be finished coating the outside of the structure and then they would need to go on and repeat the process on the inside. 
Now, several years into the project, maybe decades, and Noah's family still had a long way to go. Once this project was waterproofed inside and out, it was time to start construction on the interior decks. They had made the shell. Now they had to go and work on the inside. God told Noah to build three levels and then add walls to create stalls for the different animals. The decks had to be sturdy enough to to withstand the weight of massive animals that weighed hundreds of pounds like cattle and elephants. The walls needed to be strong enough to keep the animals separated. Now, I have had the privilege of seeing an elephant knock down a tree with its back, and there is that's a powerful animal, and God had to instruct Noah exactly how he was going to build this vessel strong enough so that that wouldn't happen when these big animals were, were invited into the ark. So Noah, he's wondering, how best do I sort the animals? And, you know, his mind maybe wandered there as he built that, but realized, you know what, that is a headache for years down the road. And for now, he just needed to focus on this section of wall that was in front of him and just keep spreading the tar to waterproof the boat. And Noah was in it for the long haul. No matter how many years it took to complete the assignment God had given him, he was committed to what the Lord had asked him to build. Now, this familiar story, most of us are familiar with the story of Noah and the ark. But have you ever given serious thought to what Noah and his family really accomplished? What their day-to-day looked like as they pushed forward in the project God had given him? What God had asked Noah to do, it's, it's difficult for us to even imagine. Noah and his family built by hand a giant ship that was one and a half times the length of a football field. They had no power tools. There was no construction equipment. This was the undertaking of a lifetime, and it would take longer than a summer or a weekend or even a quarantine period. In the first lesson, we looked at how Noah found God's favor by living righteously. And now we're going to turn to the next major idea that Noah gives us as an example that his life teaches us. Even though the grace or the favor of God could never be earned, you do have to be dedicated to see it present in your life. Noah taught us that God's favor requires commitment. Now, commitment is not always a fun word. It's easy to like something on social media or to claim a particular cause as your own, to share that uh, fundraiser or to donate a little bit to somebody's GoFundMe that is for a righteous cause. But it is another matter entirely to really commit to something because commitment is costly. Yes, Noah found God's favor, but that favor came at a very high price. God shared with Noah his disappointment at society's corruption, and he warned Noah of the coming judgment that would wipe humanity off the face of the earth, except for Noah. Think about it. If Noah had received God's plan for judging the world and said, oh, yep, that's true, they're awful, and that's a good idea, Lord, you go ahead and destroy them. But beyond that, what if he had never actually built the ark? he would have died with everyone else. 
us, we who know the end of the story can look back and see that if Noah had not obeyed, it would have been extremely foolish. His whole family, the entire human race would have died if he had not done what God told him to. And yet many people, even listening, expect to receive God's saving favor without doing anything to obey him. How foolish. That's just as foolish as if Noah hadn't built the ark. Not only are those living that way in danger of destruction, but they have even put their families in danger. Those who don't obey God's word, those who look at the word of God and say, oh yeah, that, that's true and that's a good idea, God, and I'm sure you are actually going to fulfill what your word says you will at the end of time, but I just decided I don't want to do that. That's, that's foolish. And it's putting uh, those people and those that follow after them in danger. When God told Noah about the impending destruction of the world, he also told Noah how to save himself and his family. But in order for Noah to rescue his wife and rescue his children, he had to commit to God's plan. And that was going to take decades of hard work. There's a church here in Illinois that we occasionally drive past as we travel. Actually, it's only the frame of what would have possibly been a very beautiful sanctuary. It has been half finished for at least 15 years, but I think probably more. That's just how many years we've passed it. Seeing it reminds me of the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 28. He says, For which of you? Intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it. Lest happily, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Spiritually, that's where some people are. Like that half-built church or like the tower in the parable that Jesus told You've met with God. You know he has a plan for your life and that his will is that you are saved and yet you have stopped before the work was finished. You have, you have, uh, you have not stored up what was needed through the word of God. You haven't, you know, in his presence, we are promised strength and joy and peace that passes all understanding. Here's the thing. Everything we need to complete what God has called us to do we can find in him. It's not God's fault that we don't finish the course, but it is a lack of commitment that allows us to become a target for the enemy. When we, we begin the good fight, we begin working for him, and we, we have these moments of spiritual high, but we lack the commitment to continue doing what God has asked us to do as he wants our lives set apart for him. James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8 says, For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. A double-minded person cannot complete the work that God has called them to, cannot walk and finish this race. Noah could not afford to be double-minded. The price of wavering like the wave that James talked about, the price for Noah was his life and his family. 
And it is the same for us today. Being uncommitted or casual about God's word is gambling with the promises that he has for us and that he has for our family. Although God asked Noah to do something that was going to take years of labor, God did not leave Noah without a plan. In Genesis chapter 6, we read a summary of God's instruction to Noah, but even this summary contains specific orders. God didn't just look at Noah and say, build a big boat and put lots of animals in it. No, Noah was given exact dimensions for the length, the width, the height of this unique vessel. He was told how much ventilation to put below the roof line and how to divide up the interior space. God told Noah how many of every kind of animal to gather and reminded him that he would need enough provisions for this long journey. And when God asked Noah to commit to something this significant, he gave Noah instructions proportional to the task. God was enacting a rescue plan, and salvation requires clear direction. Has God ever given you detailed instructions for a situation? Well, maybe your answer is no, but you would be wrong. Like Noah, we have been given a rescue plan. God brought judgment on the ancient world through destruction by water, but he saved a righteous family with a specific plan of action. In 2 Peter, we are warned that God will bring judgment on the world once again, and this time through fire. That's 2 Peter 3.10. However, we don't have to live in fear because God has given us specific instructions for our salvation. We are living in the last days of an age Peter warned about in his epistles, and on the day of Pentecost as he implored the crowds to save yourselves from this perverse generation. When we commit to the new birth plan of salvation found in Acts 2.38, and when we live life according to obedience of God's word, we find God's favor. The second principle we can observe from Noah's dedication to build the ark is that commitment to God, it costs us something. For Noah, building an ark for the salvation of his family became a life-consuming task. Scripture does not tell us how long it took him to construct the ark, but we know for certain that it was not quick. We can read from Genesis chapter 5, verse 32, that Noah was 500 when his sons were born, and from Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, that he was 600 when the flood came. Sometime during that century, he was warned by God about the coming flood and instructed to build a boat. It's not a stretch to think it took Noah the majority of that 100 years to carry out the construction project. Time was not the only cost of Noah's commitment. This ark that he built, it was back-breaking labor. The open, opening narrative, when we first uh, started this lesson, it only skimmed the surface of how much work it took to build this massive boat. Noah needed space to build an extremely large supply of, of uh, he had to have a large supply of lumber, thousands of gallons of this tar that would waterproof it. And for a, a vessel this large, he would need some kind of support structure to build the boat and keep it upright. All of the materials had to be gathered and prepared by hand. There were no hardware stores. We don't know if Noah and his sons built the ark by themselves or if he used his own funds to hire a labor crew. 
Even if a large group of men worked on the vessel together, it would have been a full-time job for Noah just to oversee the construction, and it would have still taken years. The economic price of this building project would have been enormous, whether we measure it by time, by materials, by labor, the cost was steep. So here's a question for you to ponder. What price do you put on the salvation of your family? There was an additional cost to Noah's commitment. The loss of his reputation in the community. What Noah did could not be kept a secret. It could not be hidden from his neighbors. This giant boat was there for everyone to see. For decades, he worked on it with a promise of rain. In 2 Peter 2.5, Noah is described as a preacher or a herald of righteousness, which, which suggests to us that he tried to warn his community of the coming flood. Yet in Matthew 24.38, Jesus mentions that up, right up to the time that Noah and his family went into the ark, the people around him continued to eat and drink and be merry and go on with their daily life as if nothing was going to happen. At best... Noah was ignored and shunned by those around him. More likely, his family was ridiculed and mocked by people who the Bible described as having constantly evil thoughts. This probably means that his sons were not invited to those parties they continued to have. You think that Noah felt sorry for them, that they were not invited or that they were not mocked? I'm certain that as a parent, he did not like to see his kids hurting. He didn't like to see them left out. But I am also certain that he did not compromise because of this. He wanted his kids to be saved. And whether or not they were in the in crowd was not as important as finishing up the boat that would save that family. And this is an issue that the church is facing. We tend to look at the world and what they have made the norm for their kids. And we've set that as the bar for the norm for our kids. It seems like, you know, every kid, even in elementary school, has a personal cell phone with no guard and no accountability. So we look at that and we think, well, I mean, I guess my kid should too. We think, you know, every kid in my neighborhood has seen that movie or listens to that music or is involved in that activity. Surely there's nothing wrong with it because my neighbor, you know, they're, they're good parents. But they're not what God is calling you to be. The measuring stick of our family's morality cannot be the world. Instead, it must be the word of God. Shame on us if we try to keep up with the standard of what is popular in the world. It is so not worth the cost of our kids' salvation. Instead of letting his boys off the hook, Noah involved them in the process. Now, why do I think that? As we read a few, as we read a few minutes ago, even in the New Testament, Noah is held up as an example for us on how to be saved. We know that the new birth experience is very specific, that we must repent, that we must be baptized in the name of Jesus and be filled with the Holy Ghost. We also know that we can't follow these steps for our children or for our family, but they must receive this for themselves. 
Noah's boys were taught by their father to be sure of God's word. And the mere fact that as adults that they got into the ark, that they were there when that door closed, tells me that they bought in to what God had told their father. God did not make them go in that ark, the, the boys or Noah. They built the ark, but getting in it was a choice. When the day comes that God returns for his church and the world sees the destruction that the Bible tells us about, will the same be said for your children and for your family? I know there is a point in everyone's life that they have to make their own decisions. And one day, what our children choose will not be dictated by us. But I am so certain that what you do in their youth to train them up will go a long way in the decisions they will make to stay in the boat or to leave. You might say, Sister Brown, I don't have any kids. But let me convince you today that someone is watching you, watching what you will do with the plan God has given you. Once the ark was completed, what was Noah to do if the waters didn't come? He couldn't move the boat that size. To those around him, Noah was a joke. Have you been ridiculed for something God asked you to do? Like Noah, God calls us to live differently from those around us, and they will often not understand the choices that we make. But for those who come to Jesus Christ, as adults, their lifestyles may take a radical shift, and former friends may ridicule them. You, you may have that testimony that you've lost friendships over this. Or you may have heard that testimony from somebody else. But 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 4-5 through 5 says this, Of course your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. So they slander you. But remember that they will have to face God who stands ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead. You know, it's interesting, even to mock Noah, the people had to be paying attention to what he was doing. They were watching. The fact that there are people that are watching us should give us a, a little bit of a push to continue to be committed to God. Commitment to God, it requires our time, our labor, our money, and possibly even our social standing. When God calls us to commit to him, he expects everything that we have. This principle, it wasn't only present in the life of Noah, but it was repeated in the covenant God enacted with Moses and the children of Israel. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6 records this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. God expects those who commit to him to do so with their whole being. You cannot partially commit to God. Either you're, you're all in or you are not committed. Trying to serve God without full commitment, it is tiring. It is a miserable experience. Elijah rebuked the Israelites on Mount Carmel for their indecisiveness as they wobbled back and forth between God and Baal like a wave that is just tossed to and fro by the wind or whatever's popular right then. Likewise, Jesus warns his listeners about the impossibility of serving two masters at the same time. It can't be done. 
Although fully committing to what God asks us to do may cost us everything, it is so much better than the alternative. The third principle we learn from Noah's faithfulness to God's instructions is that commitment to God leads to his blessing and his reward. For Noah, this blessing included the salvation of his family. Although God was going to destroy the world, he made special provision for Noah. By the time Noah was 500 years old, the world was so corrupt that God actually regretted creating humanity. But he looked down and Noah was the exception. His commitment to God, it didn't start when he was told to build the ark. It started long before that. It was because of his commitment that God saved him. Even though God asked Noah to do something incredibly challenging, God's favor, his blessing was without, with Noah throughout the entire process. Because after he built the ark, after this impossible construction project was done and completed and the, it was time to load the animals, Noah didn't have to worry about gathering them. Building that boat, that was a big enough job. And God spared Noah this dangerous ta task of trying to collect the pair of animals and the seven pairs of clean animals and birds. Instead, the animals came to Noah and they entered the ark. Then after seven days of loading animals and making final preparations, God closed the door in the side of the boat and he sealed it. When God asks us to do something big and we commit to the job, he will bless our efforts and he will help us through it. God's blessings and his rewards continue to follow Noah after the flood. Because after they spent a year on the ark, God told Noah to get out of the boat and to repopulate the earth. God blesses Noah and his sons. He gives them dominion over the animal kingdom. He grants Noah an unusually long life. After the flood, Noah lives another 350 years, making him the third longest living human in history behind his great-great-grandfather Jared and his grandfather Methuselah. What we see from the life of Noah is that God shows favor to those who commit to him. Like Noah, God may interrupt our normal experience, our normal everyday life, and ask us to do something extraordinary. But like Noah, we can be sure that when we commit to what God asks, he will instruct us, walk with us through that journey, and grant us his special favor. We're going to end with one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. It's about a man named Cornelius. In this story, Cornelius was conflicted. He was a Roman military officer, and it was, it was his responsibility to keep order and enforce Roman law in the area where he was stationed. This small nation of Jews that he served had been a constant trouble spot for the empire. The people had a reputation for being uncooperative. They had a reputation of hostility toward outsiders and prone to riots and people had been raised up and they had had rebellions before. And yet Cornelius finds their exclusive religion strangely appealing. Although he's not a Jew and not allowed to even go into their worship services, he respected their beliefs and prayed to their God, asking for direction. He was kind to the local community and freely gave aid to the poor from his own resources. This truly is a wonder because you're talking about a man who comes from a 
tradition of worshiping many gods and doing whatever is feels good. That's what the Roman society stood for. They were they stood for wealth and they stood for uh, pleasure. And here he gives away his financial resources and he begins to pray to a god whose name who, whose name he didn't know which meant turning away from the gods that from a child he had been taught to worship so one afternoon we find cornelius in prayer and something new and unexpected happens happens suddenly a man in brilliant clothes is standing close by and calls him by name Cornelius, terrified and not knowing what to say, just stares at the visitor. And when he finally founds his voice, he says, what is it? What do you want? The angel replies to Cornelius that God had been listening to his prayers and, and was pleased with what Cornelius had been doing with his finances and helping the people around him and, and being a man that gave much care to the poor. The Bible tells us that his prayers, his, his sacrifice went up as a memorial before God. It reached God and God had compassion on him and was pleased with him. And the angel tells Cornelius that God has more for him. More than just this, this time of prayer and giving alms to the poor. God had more for Cornelius to do. And so the angel tells him, send some men to the town of Joppa, about 34 miles to the south. In Joppa, those men were to look for a man named Simon Peter who was staying with a tanner named Simon who lived near the seashore. In an instant, the messenger was gone. So Cornelius, he does exactly what he's told to do. He summons his servants and a soldier from his regiment and repeats the angel's instructions and sends them to Joppa. And after the servants and the soldiers leave, Cornelius begins to gather his family and gather even his servants and tell them about the experience that he had had. He wanted them ready to listen to this Simon Peter when he arrived. Can I tell you, we know that Cornelius' house was filled with his family and filled with his servants when Simon Peter finally came four days later. And I believe that is because Cornelius, even though he didn't know exactly how to live according to the law and exactly the things that would please the Lord, the fact that he had turned away from what he knew to be a lie and turned toward what he realized was a true God, the fact that he had done that was so pleasing to the Lord. And it was so pleasing even to those people that, that were his slaves and his family his character and the way he was committed to what he knew was right made people pay attention when he told them that something big was about to happen. And so four days later, when these servants and the soldier return with a group of men, his house is filled with people. And Cornelius sees Peter and he falls to his feet and begins to worship. And of course, Peter, he says, listen, I'm just a man like you. Stand up. And as they go inside and this crowd is waiting to hear the word of God, Peter addresses the group and begins to tell them that, that he, even shouldn't, he shouldn't even be there. He shouldn't even enter the house as a guest because he's a Jew. That's what Cornelius was facing as he, as he turned to this Jewish God. According to their rules and their rituals, this Gentile man, they shouldn't even go in his house because it would make them unclean. However... 
God hadn't just prepared Cornelius for this moment, but he had prepared Peter as well. God had showed Peter that he would not consider those people dirty. And for the first time, these, these, the Gentiles beyond just the Jews are accepted into the body of Christ. They're accepted and grafted in. And Peter says, tell me why you sent for me. Cornelius, he then recounts the angelic visit. He tells him what had happened. He tells him that the angel had said that Peter was going to tell him what to do next. And so Peter begins to preach the good news about how Jesus of Nazareth came, about, about what he did and how he died and, 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 and the experience they could have with him in the whole courtyard filled with noise as everyone began praying and praising Jesus and they were filled with the Holy Ghost just like they had been on the day of Pentecost. Peter and his Jewish companions are astounded as they listen to these Gentiles begin to speak with other tongues. Cornelius, he hadn't even heard about Jesus until this moment. He was committed and faithful to what he did know about God and now God had showed him favor by saving his family. Both Noah and Cornelius demonstrate that when we commit to God, he will bless us with his favor. Noah walked closely with God and was shown what to do to save his family. Cornelius, he didn't have the full revelation of who God was, but he was committed to what he had learned. And God answered his prayers and showed him what to do to save his family. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, we see that God gives favor to those who commit their lives to him. It's possible that there are Corneliuses in your neighborhood, that there are people waiting to hear the rest of the story. And that's why I love that we have ended with the story of Cornelius, because I truly believe that we are living in a time when God is preparing hearts. And while he might not send an angel to them and he might not speak to them in an audible voice, what he would do is position them to be able to talk to someone like you who knows the truth of the gospel and has the rest of the message for them. And I pray that like Noah, our ears are open and that our hearts are committed to God so that when God calls us to reach somebody like Cornelius, we are ready to do it. We have even a greater opportunity than Noah. We know what the saving ark is right now. We know the gospel. We know the good news. And we have an opportunity to bring more people with us. We have an opportunity to show people the way. But it's going to take commitment. It's something that God has called us all to. You might feel like he's never called you to do anything, and that's why you don't have to be committed to him. But let me tell you, every person that you have influence over, every person that you have conversations with day in and day out, every person who is watching your life, maybe they're just waiting for an invitation to, your, to know what the truth is, what the gospel is, what it is that you know that they don't. Isn't it awesome that God would include us in his plan as he included Noah? It's such a powerful thing. Let's pray. God, 
I thank you. I thank you for the story of Noah. It's a story that we often just go right past and think of it as a Sunday school story, but there is so much richness in it for us. I thank you for your favor, Lord, that you have given us the truth of the gospel. And I pray, oh God, that we would remain committed to you in everything that we do. God, we want to be committed to your word. We want to be committed to the things that you have spoken to us. Help us, Lord Jesus. Help us. Help us not to falter. Help us not to waver. Lord God, let our minds be set. Let our hearts be set on what you've called us to do. What a great God you are in your plan. It's so amazing. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.